Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Again, my name is Matt, and we are continuing in our series on the book of Matthew. Uh, So if you have a Bible or a Bible app or whatever you use, um, go ahead and get that out, and we will uh, get started this morning. And uh, as you uh, are turning there, uh, I'll I'll give a quick overview of kind of where we're at in the book of Matthew. Uh, As we enter this final section of the book, Uh, The pace of the narrative is going to slow down as Jesus uh, turns his face toward Jerusalem and the cross which is to come. Uh, uh, This large section at the end of the book is devoted to a very short amount of time, but a very important time in the life of Jesus. In today's passage, Jesus is once again going to uh, predict uh, his uh, impending death and then In the aftermath of that prediction, he's going to have an important uh, sort of discussion with his disciples about leadership and authority and what it means to be great. And I'm excited to get into the scriptures with you this morning, Uh, but before we start, I'm going to say a quick uh, prayer. Jesus, uh, we uh, just thank you first and foremost for your uh, rulership, for your kingship, for your authority that you are um, killed, resurrected, and ascended, uh, alive again and forever at the right hand of the Father. And uh, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in your kingship as we gather. And we thank you that because of you, uh, kingship and rulership and authority are actually being uh, totally flipped upside down and, and redefined. And so I pray that you would um, speak directly to our hearts this morning, Jesus, as a living uh, reality over the universe, that you uh, would teach us as individuals and as a community what it means to be great. And it wouldn't just be sort of passing information that goes in one ear and out the other, uh, but that it would be something that actually uh, sticks and takes root and becomes a defining element uh, of this community that's, that's being planted here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, Matthew 20, uh, verse 17. It says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he once again predicts his death and resurrection. This time, with even greater clarity and detail. But the odds are that the disciples misunderstood what he was talking about or glossed over it completely because they were focused on the glory which was to come. Many Jews believed that the Messiah would come that there would be a specific moment when he came to Jerusalem, entering through the east gate. And what would happen next after his entry was a matter of debate. But the most popular image is that the Messiah, this anointed one chosen by God, would enter the east gate and immediately begin instigating the second and final exodus from slavery. That, that he would lead the Jewish people to, to free them from their pagan oppression and, and that God would establish a literal, physical kingdom on earth centered around Jerusalem. The things which Christians are anticipating at the end of the age, the return of the Messiah, uh, the judgment of the earth, the end of evil, the resurrection of the dead, a literal, physical kingdom of God on earth for all eternity. These were the things that the Jewish people were anticipating at the arrival of the Messiah. They didn't realize there would be a gap between the two. Which means that for these original disciples and all who believed that Jesus was the Messiah there would have been this growing anticipation of these events. Jesus now heads toward Jerusalem with a purpose on the Passover, which was the annual celebration of the Jewish exodus or release from slavery. And, and so if there's a moment that this is going to happen, they know this is the moment. Okay? So the tension is high and, and hopes are high as well. This is the second exodus. This is the end of the age. The Messiah is finally here, and he's going to enter Jerusalem and, and usher in the kingdom of God on earth in all of its fullness. And if that's true, then we need to reserve our seats in advance. If the entire world hierarchy is about to be flipped upside down, then might I take this moment uh, to reserve for myself a favorable place within the new hierarchy. And so the mother of James and John comes to Jesus with her adult sons. 
in order to advocate for them, as only a passionate mother knows how to do. Jesus, would you please give me what I'm about to request? Um, well, why don't you tell me first, and then I'll let you know. Okay, okay, okay. Jesus, please let James and John sit at your right hand and your left once your kingdom is established. And, and to be clear, these are places of honor and authority and power. She's not just trying to reserve box seats for the big event or something like that. What, what she's attempting to do is reserve these eternal places of honor and privilege and power over and above the other disciples and, of course, the rest of humanity as well. And Jesus' response is just classic. He says, yeah, you don't really know what you're asking. Which, if I had been one of the original disciples, I imagine I would have heard this a lot. <laughs> hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? Hear me out. Oh, Matt, you don't really know what you're talking about. It's not exactly what you want to hear from Jesus. But here's what he's saying in response. He's saying, hey, you've got this all upside down. This isn't just about conquering and judgment and power and privilege. It's actually going to be about humility and sacrifice. And in fact, my kingdom is not going to come in full right now. And as a matter of fact, in the countless years which are yet to come, my kingdom will be advanced, not by the proud and self-promoting, but by the meek and, and the, and the servant-hearted. And in fact, my kingdom will be most powerfully advanced through my death and persecution. And, and in its aftermath, it will be most powerfully advanced through the death and persecution of my closest followers. That is how my inbreaking kingdom will advance on earth. I'm sorry, but you don't have all the facts and you don't know what you're talking about. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Jesus asked. Can you sacrificially suffer the way that I am going to suffer. And the disciples probably have no idea what this cup is, but they answer with an emphatic, yes, we can. Not totally sure what that is, but, but I think we can handle it. To which Jesus answers, actually, yes, you will, in fact, drink from my cup. In other words, the cross which I'm about to suffer will so transform you that you will become sacrificial sufferers as you follow after me. You yourselves will be persecuted and killed. 
And they don't know that any of that is coming, but it is. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, you don't understand my impending suffering. Like you just, you can't get it through your heads that I'm about to be executed on a Roman cross. And I keep telling you, but you don't get it. You don't understand my impending suffering. Therefore, you cannot possibly understand the impending suffering that you yourselves will suffer post-resurrection with joy. And as a result, you don't totally understand the nature of the kingdom, future or present. And as a result, you don't totally understand greatness in the kingdom, future or present. You don't really know what you're talking about. But here's the basic premise. The height of my greatness, Jesus says, is going to be crucifixion. It is the moment that I fully and finally give of myself for the sins of the world. In fact, the the vision that we get of Jesus in the book of Revelation is, is he's pictured as a lamb on the throne looking as if he had been slain. And the multitudes around him are worshiping him, saying, holy, holy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. This will be the basis of his greatness, the basis of his worship, sacrifice, humbling himself unto death. In fact... Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the worst type of death and the most humiliating, even death on a cross. What's Paul saying? He's saying that that Jesus went from the highest place in the universe to the lowest. That is the definition of humility and and love and self-sacrifice. And that then becomes the definition of greatness. And and if that's true, it challenges everything that we think we know about greatness and power and rulership and authority. Because when we think of rulership and authority, we almost always think of it in negative terms. In part because we're American, but in part because we're human. And and when we look around us in the world today or through the pages of history, essentially every example that we have of human beings attaining unrestrained power, they're all negative. All of our examples, all throughout history, all of the kingship and power and authority in every movie, in, in every show, in every fantasy that passes through our minds. In each and every one of them, 
we use our power and influence in deeply self-centered and self-glorifying ways. It would seem that human beings and power do not go well together. And it is this almost universal abuse of power that has led to the rise of feminism and the civil rights movement and every single rebellion and revolution throughout human history. All of it is a reaction against abuse of power. And, and, and this abuse of power is so ubiquitous, so pervasive, that, that we just assume that if someone has enough power, they will eventually abuse it. And of course they're going to use it to promote themselves. There's no question about it in our minds. In fact, that was the brilliance of the Founding Fathers. They reacted against an abuse of power in, in, in kingship and authority, and they went and formed a new nation with three branches of government that all watch each other. The, the genius of the American governmental system is not that it somehow at last unleashed the pure and unadulterated human heart. No. The genius of the Founding Fathers is that they designed a system that at last recognized its brokenness. That at last recognized that when human beings have power, that they just tend to abuse it. That, that, was, that was their genius. How terribly pessimistic of them. Why would they make that assumption? Because that's what's been happening from the beginning. If you go all the way back to the beginning, to Adam and Eve, you get to see this at play. They are created as equal partners with complementary features and complementary roles. And though they're completely equal, I'm going to argue that Adam had a unique responsibility within that relationship uh, to, to love and lead and, and serve within the harmony that was to be their relationship with one another and their relationship with God. Uh, and I'm going to argue that that original relationship represented hierarchy without sin. And, and that is a concept that we can hardly grasp in light of human history. Like, we don't understand that. But right after the fall, in which humanity rebels against God and, and kind of chooses their own way, they step into, fall into uh, sin and darkness. And the first thing that God does is that he comes to them and he begins explaining this new nightmare that they're stepping into by rejecting him and going their own way. And, and this is what he says 
uh, to them. He says, Eve, your desire will be for your husband. Or many scholars say, hey, your desire will be to rule over your husband. But he will rule over you. Welcome to hierarchy with sin. Where the two no longer look to serve one another selflessly, but now look to rule over one another in self-promotion and and, and self-centeredness, in self-glorifying ways. And you get to the next chapter of Scripture, just a few verses later, and you get introduced to a guy named Lamech, uh, who conquers and kills and subjugates and, and collects wives as if they were property. And the Bible uses this to highlight how terribly wrong things have gone in humanity. This is intensely evil. Look how depraved we have become. And yet, we have to recognize that this is the world that we were born into. The world of subjugation and self-glory where the greatest idol we will be tempted to worship is the idol of self. It's me over you. Self-worship and self-centeredness are the new human norms. It's our standard operating procedure. Of course I'm more important than you. I'm me. And this is how James and John come to Jesus, operating in this all-too-familiar paradigm. They approach him as sons of Adam, looking to promote themselves over others and even the other disciples. They want to have power and authority, even over the other ten. It's me over you. And perhaps, they think, these places of power and privilege, perhaps they're just there for the taking. Perhaps Jesus is just waiting for people to come and elevate themselves and claim those positions. And I'm not going to sit back and let one of those other guys take that spot. I mean, we deserve those spots. And I'm going to assert myself and, and be a man and step up and claim them for, actually, mom, do, do you think you could go maybe and like talk to Jesus for us? Like, come on, mom. And, and even though this is the new human norm, it is still upsetting, as it should be. The other disciples find out what James and John asked, and they are indignant. And not because the other ten are super holy, but because they should have just as much right to those places of privilege and power as James and 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 John. I mean, who do they think they are going to ask for those spots behind our back? I mean, I, I deserve that spot, not not James and John. 
Certainly I'm more important than them. I'm me. And suddenly, the whole scene begins to degenerate, and, and it starts to feel more like a middle school cafeteria than Jesus' inner circle of disciples as they begin to bicker with, with one another. And the tension is rising, and finally Jesus says, all right, stop. Like, everybody, bring it in. We're, we're going to take this head on. We're going to solve this right now. And he ends up teaching them a lesson that has been taught before, but not learned. And it cuts straight to the heart of rulership and power and authority and greatness. He goes for the throat, for the greatest of all human idols, for the idol of self. And Jesus begins flipping the whole thing upside down. He says, listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. True or false? True. Overwhelmingly so. That's what authority and rulership have become in a fallen world. It's the only thing we know how to do with power and authority. We've been doing it from the beginning. But, Jesus says, not so with you. You are going to operate on an entirely different paradigm that's going to break this sick pattern that's been happening from the very beginning. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your salve. Slave. What, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, take everything that you thought you knew about rulership and, and power and, and authority and, and turn it upside down. It is no longer about self-promotion. It is no longer about lording it over others. And if there's any confusion as to how you should tread into this new territory, as to how you should live this out as a community of disciples, then look at the cross. The cross is the height of greatness. It is the height of love. The height of self-sacrifice. And it becomes not just the means by which we enter the kingdom of God, but it also becomes the model for kingdom living. Do you see the difference? On the one hand, the cross is the means by which our sin is atoned for, by which we are forgiven, cleansed, adopted in, made into new creations. It is the means by which you are freed from the power of Satan, sin, and death. It is the instrument of our liberation. But... As new creations, as liberated people who now follow after Jesus, the cross becomes the model for daily living. And in fact, the model for leadership as well. How are we to lead? How are we to pursue 
greatness? How are we to approach hierarchy? Well, the greatest among you must be a slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. All of this comes back to the cross. How are you to to operate in hierarchy? Well, it's just as I've come with this heart posture and I've come to give my life for the many. The, the, The cross is our means and it is our example at the same time. To, to put it in narrative, uh, biblical terms, there is a sense in which you are Barabbas, uh, the, the criminal who was freed in place of Jesus. At the cross, you receive completely unearned and undeserved freedom. You are declared innocent as Jesus is declared guilty. And that is stunning. But there is also a sense in the narrative in in which you are Simon of Cyrene who encounters Jesus on the way to be crucified and, and carries the cross up the hill following after Jesus. You are both. Which is why Jesus says, Anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is the center. This is the center of discipleship. This is the center of the Christian life. Every other call of Jesus, every other command, every teaching, all of this new spirit-filled life is all centered around the call to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after Him. And, and, and what is this cross that we are to bear? And, and what does it mean to deny yourself? Because sometimes we come up with ideas that aren't incredibly helpful. And, and oftentimes the concept of denying yourself turns into, well, I, I should deny myself some, some vice, some, some thing that's tripping me up in my discipleship. So, so I will deny myself cigarettes or pornography or chocolate or w- whatever it is for you. I'll deny myself this thing. And, and, and to be sure, self-denial might, might include those things. Okay, I'm not ruling that out. But it, it is not primarily denying yourself something so much as it is denying your very self. And I'll tell you how this has played out in uh, my life in the last few weeks. And in order for you to understand the story, I have to first announce to you that my wife and I are pregnant. Which is super exciting. Happy Father's Day to me. Um, 
No, we're really excited about it. Uh, but the, for the last 12, we just hit 12 weeks. Yesterday, today, something. Um, but the last two months, to be honest, have been really difficult um, because my wife has had uh, really bad morning sickness and um, you guys just thought that she had the flu for like two months. I was like, oh, she's still sick. Um, but she had really bad morning sickness and so she's like kind of taken out of the picture, just bedridden more or less for a lot of that time. Super sick, throwing up all of it. Um, and so for a lot of uh, that time, uh, there were these uh, days or weeks in which I, I essentially was operating more or less as a single parent, um, which, which gave me a whole new appreciation for single moms and dads. Like, I cannot believe, you guys are like my heroes now, like, I cannot believe what it takes to lead a family as a single parent. So my hat is, is off to you if you are in that position. I have a whole new level of respect. Uh, but in the meantime, I've, I've just been in this grind of like trying to take care of, of the kids and my wife and work full time and, you know, just do everything at once. Uh, and, and what has been most exposed in that grind has been my ego. Because it's not uh, uncommon, I, I, day in and day out, I'm having this, this internal wrestling match, right, between uh, my flesh and my spirit, uh, b- between what I think I deserve, what I think I'm entitled to on the one hand, and, and the reality of what's needed, and, and the call to serve on the other. And, and to be honest, it's been really hard for me. Like, I, I do not think I have handled it that well. There's been a lot of repentance in, in the process. And, and the other day, I finally hit this moment um, where I was, I was, like, totally just tapped out. Like, I was just done. I had, like, I had enough days of, of waking up super early and, and going to bed at 10 o'clock and midnight and just going, going, going. I, I was tapping out. I, I, was, I had had my fill of servanthood. And yet, in that moment, late at night, sure enough, somebody else need, needed help, needed, needed attention, needed me to serve them. And, and I had this, it's like, been like wrestling with anger, which is just an unusual thing for me. I've been like frustrated and angry. And I, had, I was like, oh, I am so frustrated. Right? Like, I don't want to do this. I don't. And in the moment, I just sense God just almost whispering three simple words. I was at the end of my rope. Slave to all. That, that was it. That, that, that was the call for me in that moment. And I said yes, but, but it's almost bitter sometimes saying yes to that call, saying, saying yes to that version of greatness. And yet, even in my frustration, I can see what it does for my family. I, I can see them come to life and, and flourish in a way that they never could if I operated in the world's paradigm of greatness and rulership and, and authority. My wife and I read the Bible to say that there actually is a hierarchy within our home. 
but we also uh, read the Bible as something that speaks deeply into how we are to operate in that hierarchy, as, as to what positions of authority mean within the kingdom. Because it's totally upside down as to what the world says. And to be honest, I, I think we've had too many men too many fathers, too many husbands throughout history who, who have chosen to lord it over instead of choosing the way of the cross. Do I have a unique hierarchical position within the home? My wife and I think yes, according to the way that we read the Bible. But I will never understand how to operate within that hierarchy as God intended unless I am completely submitted to Jesus. Unless I am carrying my cross, imperfect as I am, unless I am denying myself, picking up my cross, and following after Him. Because Jesus says to everyone, to every single one of us, deny yourself, your very self, and your rights, and your privileges, and your impulse to self-promotion, and your very real ability to lord it over others, and, and set all of it aside, just like Jesus did, and instead, clothe yourselves in this sweet humility that is not distracted by self-worship and self-promotion. You stop saying, it's me over you. And you forget about yourself completely. You, you take on a whole new mindset of humility over self-promotion. Jesus illustrates the point this way. He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. Next slide. But when you are invited, instead take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, Move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of the other guests. Here's the key. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you don't get that last part, you will not understand greatness in the kingdom of God, present or future. And, and you'll notice that this parable describes exactly what just happened with James and John. They tried to snag the most honored seats in the universe at the ultimate wedding banquet at the end of the age. And now they risk being embarrassed as Jesus gently informs them that those seats are not for them, that, that, that that's not how it works and that God the Father will decide who will sit at his right hand and his left. And if I had to guess, 
based on this parable, they'll probably be filled with, with a couple of nobodies from the back of the banquet hall. People whose names you've never heard of. People that history never picked up and celebrated. People who never promoted themselves or asked for attention. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven will not be megachurch pastors from America whose names you know. It's more likely to be some small-time disciple from Kuala Lumpur whose name you don't know, who gave everything and, and risked everything and set themselves aside completely for the work of the kingdom with an underground church of 20 that meets in their living room under constant threat of persecution. It's going to be accountants and moms and dads and school teachers who follow Jesus faithfully in all things, but whose names you never knew because that was never the goal of their discipleship. It's going to be the type of people who would walk into the banquet hall in the kingdom of heaven and immediately grab a seat in the back because none of their thoughts were of self-promotion and self-glory. And Jesus is going to stand up and, and say, you, you in the back, come up here. Come and sit at my right hand. Come and sit at my left. For you were the greatest of all. The world said that being great was about trampling others in a mad rush to stay in the spotlight. And it was in the midst of this world that you set yourself aside and became a slave. A slave who knew their infinite value in the eyes of God and therefore cared nothing for the value placed on them by the world. A slave who was in touch with their own belovedness and therefore awakened others to the same. A slave who cared more about the name of Jesus than their own and who encountered a fuller, richer life than any self-promoting, self-worshipping person ever could. They will be the greatest. And if we are willing, as a community, to redefine greatness in this way, with the cross as its center, then we will be the type of people who ourselves become great. We will begin to flavor the atmosphere around us in such a way that it is intoxicating, even transformative for those who are so burnt out on the old paradigm. If we are willing to redefine greatness, then our friendships and our marriages and our missional communities and our classrooms and our boardrooms and our neighborhoods and perhaps even our nation 
will be different. Because the dream is to one day live in a world where feminism and political protests and sit-ins and walkouts are not silenced, but are no longer necessary. As the healing hand of God infiltrates all hierarchy, all power, all authority, all rulership, and, and they are at last brought under King Jesus for His glory. As those who do have power and authority stop lording it over others as slave masters and instead uh, take on the intoxicating humility of voluntary slaves who value those under their authority more than they value themselves. And when that day comes, the cross will no longer be a, a distant, theoretical, historical event. It will be a felt, embodied reality so that many would be able to look on and see His kingdom come and see His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.